Welcome to the show. This is the Bot Brothers AI for Educators. I'm Mike Pearson. I'm Pat Burns. Thanks for joining us there, Pat. It was a little pause there, wasn't it? That was for dramatic. Get you off fact. guard. I like it's a five <laughs> and I'm feeling like, I don't know, come on. Yeah. <laughs> trying to create tension in this show. Um, so today we have something, uh, Pat, we've got something I think kind of different. Like we are an AI for Educators podcast. But a lot of what we talk about is language. And so we have a, a guest that we think is really uh, unique. as a former Buddhist monk, and his work is in translating ancient Buddhist texts. And we thought that the, that his uh, expertise in, in language and translation might shed some light on um, machine translation at some level. So we want to introduce, um, do I call you Dr. Bob Miller now that you're PhD'd? <laughs> or do we just call you Bob, Bob? Yeah, you can just call me Bob. Thanks. All right. Well, Dr. Miller. No, Bob. So this is Bob Miller. I'm, I'm going to let Bob introduce himself because his his Vita is is really interesting. And and uh, a lot of it's in countries I've never visited. So I don't think I can even grasp how to say the say say some of the, the, the language in this. So so Bob, what what is your what is your what is your background? Like how did you enter into translation and what do you do as a translator? Well, I, I grew up in Naperville, um, you know, and went through kindergarten through 12th grade uh, in District 203, and then I uh, went to college at the University of Illinois down in Urbana-Champaign. And uh, while I was there, I took an interest in Buddhism. Um, well, actually, my interest in Buddhism began in high school, my last year at Naperville North, but uh, it really blossomed. Um, at, at Urbana-Champaign, where I was able to actually practice meditation um, with a group of uh, other other people. And I was also to, able to take some academic courses uh, on uh, Chinese Buddhism and Japanese Buddhism. And I, I realized that I felt a real affinity towards it. And that led me then to study in Nepal for a year as part of my undergraduate education. And uh, while I was there, I just fell in love with the, you know, the Tibetan culture. I was really profoundly moved by the values, um, in particular, the sort of generosity uh, that they that they showed to people. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I, my experience living there taught me that if I really wanted to communicate with these people and to learn. You know how you know, why their culture was you know so sort of generous and open that I'd have to learn the language. Um, and I was young and gung ho, and I didn't have any experience in languages. I mean, you know, I took the the average, you know, take a Spanish class and took a French right. class. You know, but you know, I didn't I, I didn't have any real interest in it. It was just a requirement. But then when I had an actual objective. Um, I found myself really highly motivated. And so uh, two weeks after I graduated from, from Urbana-Champaign, I was in, I flew to northern India uh, in a town called Dharamsala, which is where the Dalai Lama and uh, about 20,000, 30,000 Tibetans uh, live in exile. Um, so it's the center of a huge uh, Tibetan refugee population, and I studied uh, studied Tibetan there in a translator program for two years. And there, I learned to learn. I learned to speak um, 
Tibetan, but also learned how to read the classical language, which is different from the spoken language and in, you know, in a way similar to uh, Italian might be different from Latin, let's say. Okay. So, you you know, you learn, they're basically the same language, but it takes an effort to, to learn each one individually. Um, and when I, when I did that, I got a job working as an interpreter. So I say interpret rather than translate, because in, in my profession, uh, to interpreting refers to the act of orally translating for somebody. So, for example, okay. at the United Nations, you have interpreters who are listening to people speak and repeating what they say. So I got a job working as an interpreter, interpreting for an older Tibetan Buddhist teacher who would give lectures on philosophy and meditation. And um, he was based at a, at a Buddhist center in Australia. So I, I went there, um, wound up staying seven years, and I loved it. And wow. yeah, you know, it was just, it was so enriching in, in many ways. And while I was there, I became a monk. And uh, after seven years of a real sort of scholastic type of education, because he was a a real philosophy expert, uh, I made the decision to move back to India and to study under a meditation master. And so I, I lived um, with this meditation master at, uh, for about eight years, um, again, in northern India, in Dharamsala. And while I was there, uh, I was appointed the, um, the monastery bursar. Um, so... I was effectively the the principal of this of the the monastery, you know, because the monastery is first and foremost an educational institution. So, okay. you know, after years of education myself um, in the Tibetan system, I I wound up uh, as the effectively principal of a of a small Tibetan monastery with about seventy monks from different Himalayan minorities and. Um, yeah, and then uh, so I came back then in 2015, and uh -huh. I started a. I gave back my vows, so I'm no longer a monk, and in, uh, I started a PhD at the University of California Berkeley in Buddhist studies, um, which I just completed. And congratulations! Uh, really, yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and the focus of my work is, you know, it's it's. I didn't intend for it to be so, but in the end, it be. Um, my work is sort of a reflection on the training and education that I received in becoming a Buddhist monk. And um, yeah, so it's, it's gotten me thinking a lot about social emotional learning and how, you know, the sort of official curriculum and the, the hidden curriculum and how so much learning takes place um, you know, in a nonverbal fashion and through, but particularly through modeling and, uh, and demonstration by teachers. So yeah, that's, that's essentially, you know, so now I work full time as a translator and as an editor um, for 84,000. And uh, I continue this, uh, the journey of learning Tibetan. Right. So you are, so 84,000 is a nonprofit, right? That's and right. they are trans what are they translating so they are translating the indian buddhist canon which exists 
or which was translated into the Tibetan language 1,200 years ago. So wow. there, it, it's approximately, let's say it's, imagine a library uh, consisting of approximately 330 books, each about 500 pages long. And that's the scope of this Indian Buddhist canon that exists in Tibetan translation. And so 84,000's project is to bring that all, to translate that all into English online for free access. Okay. So your part of your job is to take Tibetan, classical Tibetan, mm -hmm. and translate it into modern-day English. That's correct. And then I thought you had told me once that you that you also translate Sanskrit. That's right. That, since, no. Yeah, since most since the all of those these texts that now exist in Tibetan originally existed in Sanskrit, in the Indian language of Sanskrit. So they were translated from Sanskrit into Tibetan about 1,200 years ago, you know, roughly 800 um, AD. So the Sanskrit manuscripts, the writings themselves, have been lost because they were written on palm leaves or birch bark. And those are not very durable substances, especially in, given the, the climate of the Indian subcontinent. And Buddhism declined and, and eventually disappeared in, in India about 1200 AD. So this huge body of literature um, that had been translated 400 years earlier in 800 AD, by 1200 AD becomes only enshrined in Tibetan. And so now that's where we, if, you want, if we want to access this canon of literature, we have to do so through Tibetan translations. And because so if you, you can't get the Sanskrit. Because the Sanskrit is gone. In many cases, it no longer exists. But in those cases where it does exist, it's invaluable for understanding and unraveling the Tibetan and understanding the patterns that the translators of the times used. Well, it, okay. There's so much going on with that, uh, Bob, that I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around because I'm thinking about equivalence and there isn't an equivalent. And my head's like, well, we, what about like Canterbury Tales? It's like, no, it's older than the Canterbury Tales that you're translating. And, and it's my reference point as an English teacher. And I'm thinking, well, that's, that's uh, you know, an older English form of English. And yet it's still somewhat discernible, but you're going across cultures, um, two different cultures, and they're very, very foreign cultures compared to say, you know, you know the Canterbury Tales and what, and what we speak uh, here in the States uh, primarily. And, and so I guess what I'm going, what's going on in my head is I'm thinking like thinking about those, like the cultural divide uh, and difference, like how does that impact or in what ways does that maybe impact how you're even approaching your translations? Because that's a pretty big gulf, even though you have some training nonetheless uh, across culture, across time. Mm -hmm. uh, what sort of considerations do you have to take into account? Uh, you know, can you maybe speak to that a little bit, please? Yeah, so at UC Berkeley, um, within the field of the Buddhist studies, we're trained in what's called philology. So, you know, many of us will know, you know, philosophy, um, which is sort of the knowledge, the love of knowledge, the study of knowledge, right? 
philology here is the study of words, the love of words. So Phil, love, Philadelphia, the brother, mm-hmm. the city of brotherly love, right? Logi, logos, the word. Exactly. So philology is the study or love of words. And so this this is a subject uh, that's probably been around for, you know, two, three hundred years within, you know, Europe, European and North American academic uh, disciplines. Uh, It's sort of the mother of all the humanities, so to speak. And, you know, at a certain point in the um, in the uh, 19th century, philology began to um, fracture into individual disciplines so mm-hmm. that you had, for example, the study of rhetoric separated from the study of grammar, which is studied mm-hmm. separated itself from the study of literature, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you think of philology or what we are trying, you know, what I as a professional uh, translator am trying to do is I need to draw on all of those different fields. And so sort of the best way to understand, uh, I think, philology is that it's the study of cultures through the texts that they produced. And in order to understand the texts that they produce, you 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 have to draw upon. In other words, by interpreting the written texts, you have to draw upon what you know of the material culture and the socioeconomic realities that, you know, produce the text. So it's an interesting um, sort of feedback, you know, the more, the better you learn the language, the more precisely you can understand it on a grammatical level. But the more you know about culture, the more context Mm -hmm. you have for it. Mm -hmm. And so these the studies of philology and translation, these, these two things sort of, uh, you know, the foreignness um, is, you know, never completely overcome, um, but you grapple with the foreignness. How do you, you know, how do you come to understand and translate these different, different concept concepts? It's through these two, two um, approaches. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Bob. Can you think of an like, example, a like basic Tibetan Sanskrit sentence, and then kind of like, well, if I was going to translate this into English, here's what I'd have to consider. Yeah, well, that's an interest, interesting question because structurally, or let's say probably, um, you know, linguistically, English operates in a way closer to Sanskrit than mm. either Sanskrit or English do to Tibetan. So oh, wow. okay. what I mean is that, but they're each different languages. Because So let me just try and explain it clearly, or briefly rather, is that Sanskrit is what's called an inflected language, which means that it uses conjugations and declensions to indicate the role of a word in a sentence. So Latin is an inflected language. Um, um, so in that case, um, the ending of, of nouns 
actually change according to whether it's a direct object or it's an okay. indirect object or it's an instrument or an agent of the sentence. You, the form of the word actually changes the ending. Um, and same thing with uh, the verbs are conjugated, meaning that depending on the tense or the mood, then the actual form of the word changes. Right? That's Sanskrit. Okay. In English uh, is an uninflected language in that our words you know, really don't change very much. We use prepositions instead. So if you take the, the book, a noun, when you know the role of the book in the sentence is communicated through its placement, that is to say, syntax, word right, order, right? Word order, right? Yeah, and the addition of prepositions. So if I say, I set my tea on the book, mm -hmm. the, the you know, you have the prepositional phrase on with the book so on the book um so um you know as a result you know and then there's another thing about word order so tibetan and, and english have different word orders different syntax so um i mean this is probably i've gone into way too much detail probably don't want to uh, include this you're but, doing great <laughs> um you know so basically you know you have a difference between their inflected and uninflected but um just for the record, Bob, Mike mm -hmm. put you in that position, not you. So that just blame him. For oh no, no, I put no. you on the spot. I mean, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, no, no. It's okay. This is my. I mean, I'm. It's, it's just my uh, want is to go into uh, excessive detail. So well, I'm just thinking like how just how complex a translation would be just just from the get go that like even like the syn syn the syntax is different. Right. And that the words have different features. Like we, I guess we have morphemes and phonemes, but when it's inflected, like those will change. And, and we don't do that. Right. So just, just to take one language into another is a very complicated process. Right. That's what I'm hearing. It's like, gotcha. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. so on that, there, there's sort of a, you know, I also work with other um, Asian languages um, like Pali, but in this, what I'm thinking of is Chinese. Um, and so Chinese uses, uh, you know, as a language prefers um, very brief sentences. Uh, so you don't ha really have subclauses in Chinese in the way that we have huh. in English. So you could never get a Chinese writer like William James, who has a sentence that goes on for several lines, including several right. subclauses, because everything is expressed, you know, in this more sort of telegraphic way in short bursts. Um, and so those kind of differences really affect um, your understanding of a text, because in a language like that, you have to understand how much is carried over, um, you know, from previous sentences. Whereas in English, you might they, it might right. all be have the same subject, clearly the same subject, because it's all grammatically part of the same sentence. When you have these languages that are more telegraphic, you know, that express things, um, I think it's called peristatic or paraphratic, really, then it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it requires you to carry over things like this, 
like the pronouns or um, oftentimes the subjects of the sentence. You don't necessarily, it's not necessarily stated explicitly. And so these are types of things that you have to get a feel for. You know, when you're first learning these languages, you're reading it and you're sort of lost at sea because you don't, you know, the, the mm -hmm. grammatical subject is nowhere to be seen. I mean, who's doing what? Uh, it, it isn't obvious. Hmm. So you just have to acclimate by doing a, like a lot of reading? Yeah, you get a feel for the language. You know, you get a feel for the way that the subject is implied. Mm -hmm. So that you come, you you don't come to expect the subject anymore. You know, you sort of understand that we're still talking about the same person. That's kind of yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking like an AI AI land when like there's no way an LLM is feeling right. Getting just to kind of like well, it should. I, I'm feeling like it should be this. Like it is creating this emotional or imagistic effect and so then when i'm gonna when i'm gonna translate it if, if i'm hearing you right you kind of have that sense like almost like the connotations of a word like you know and, yeah. and you have that and then you're like how do i best frame that in an english construction is that kind of the gist of it definitely i think you hone in on <clears throat> on the most important word there too being sense you know having a feeling for something uh, so nowadays in cognitive science, there is a recognition that knowledge isn't necessarily, um, you know, filled with contents of, you know, um, you know, informational propositional content that you, in other words, knowledge is not, is not just knowing how some or what something is, it's knowing how to do something, right? Mm -hmm. That's also a form of a form of knowledge. So when we, you know, cognitive scientists now understand that when we learn how to do something, the learning of how to involves this, um, this whole sort of feeling, you know, that, you know, just kind of getting a sense for something and the way that you get a sense for the game and the rules of tennis. So you get a sense for the right. way, you know, to play guitar. There's a sort of, a, There's you a know, bop. Yeah. Yeah, there's a feeling and, and you know, and 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 that, that language that in, in translating one of the, the developing a sense for the most appropriate term is crucial. You develop that through reading as much as you possibly can. But then you also have to draw upon your own experience. So you get a, you know, as a personal reader or user of the language, you know. What you know when I when I read this word in Tibetan, what feels you know the most appropriate um, in this context? And it's difficult for in this it's difficult I think for large language models to to do this because the criteria is undefined. It's, mm. You know, it's not really something you can quantify. You know, you can develop criteria for individual instances, but the whole thing is that there's a subtlety and a nuance to each word and how it, you know, how, how the meaning of it changes in context that right. that blanket approach doesn't, isn't able to approximate, you know, the individual translator's sense of 
discrimination or aesthetics or feel the sense. On that point, Bob, it seems to me that like within English, just by way of maybe as a corollary, corollary, can you use my volume okay now? <laughs> You're good. I'm yeah. thinking about like, I've had conversations recently with some people about uh, words and connotations of words in English. So you take something like propaganda as a term today, and all the connotations that people typically have with the word propaganda tend to be negative. Uh, and there's a, there's historical reasons for that if you go back particularly to, say, World War II and, and the use of, of Nazi propaganda. Now, the term itself was used well prior to that and pretty unoffensively or, or without much controversy. It wasn't necessarily seen as negative. In fact, some would argue it actually was a positive sort of connoted word. And yet to not have that kind of historical appreciation um, of, of kind of our sense of it today and how it's drastically different from how it would have been 100 years ago matters but you're doing that across cultures and even much more centuries uh yeah so that's and and then you've got of course there's the dependent and the sanskrit so there's multiple layers going on there that i don't know how any when i think about say ai or, or llms trying to discern how to translate uh particularly ancient texts across cultures um and and presumably not with enough text to even draw from to make good probabilistic sort of kind of guesses so to speak I don't even know how it begins to do that in any sort of great way or significant way. And when you use the word nuance, that to me, that seems to be the perfect word that it loses all sense of nuance uh, or or it's much more like uh, much more difficult for the system to get it because they are so devoid of sense uh, or sensory sort of kind of, uh, I guess, I don't want to say feelings, but that, that sensory sort of kind of knowledge that that we possess or develop or cultivate through exposure. Um, because it's it's very kind of formulaic, and what you're describing is something that isn't really a formula. It's it, I, I hesitate to use the word organic, but that's the word that pops up to my mind. I don't know if that makes sense or if that applies or if there's a better word, but it just seems like there's something that's uh, um, some sort of natural kind of thing that we do as humans that 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 technology just does it. It's too almost mechanic in a way. I don't know if you can I think yeah I think I think organic is a is a good choice of words um in that I think that language is like uh an ecosystem you know particularly you know the language that you know we all you know collectively speak as a culture as a society at this point in time you know it's this huge ecosystem mm-hmm. um and you know and so everything is interconnected and influences influences things and then on a very sort of micro level you have words which linguists will say have you know a semantic field right meaning Mm -hmm. you know in you know in simple terms a field of associations a field as you say patrick of connotations Mm -hmm. right so you know, and 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 so I think the uh, analogy of nature of, of organic ecosystem is appropriate here because, as a translator, you're sort of trying to figure out. You know, you have to look around. What's the niche that you're trying to fill? What you know? What is the role of this particular word in this larger, uh, in this larger ecosystem? Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it it. Re- you know, it requires us, it's just interdependent, so to speak, in a, um, mm-hmm. in a similar, similar way to that. But you raise another interesting point, I think, which is I, the difficult, you know, the difficulties that AI and large language models might face 
in dealing with um, ancient languages. I don't know enough, of, uh, or I don't know as much about large language models and where the technology is uh, at the present. But from what I understand recently, some, you know, the obstacle to, you know, to translating some of these old languages has fallen. Specifically, prior, in, in the past, you needed a huge amount of literature already translated. So you use as a body of comparisons in order to recognize mm -hmm. all the patterns. My understanding is that these systems have become so complex and interwoven that the, the, the systems are learning, are able to learn languages that they haven't actually been taught yet. Um, and the mm. example that I, I read about was the South Asian language that had you know, very little translated apparently. So uh, the point is, is that I don't, I can't speak to, you, you know, or rather I should say that technology and it's, a, you know, might, it might not be the lack of uh, materials that, um, that, that pose the greatest challenge. I think probably the greatest challenge is that if that the results that we get from from AI translation at the moment are generally good enough. Mm -hmm. They have to be cleaned up and improved uh, in order to be made useful in many contexts. Sometimes good enough is good enough, and right, you, right. that's all you need. But in the case of, let us say, a Buddhist scripture, um, and um, there's, of course, an academic consideration, and then there is the religious consideration. You know, the uh, Buddhists will have, you know, one set of reasons why they feel, you know, not good enough is not good enough. We need to mm -hmm. clean it up. Mm -hmm. And academics will have another set of reasons why good enough is not good enough. Mm -hmm. But in any case, the great danger that I see is that machine translation takes over the the, the discipline, and, uh, and and the discipline comes to rely upon good enough translations, mm -hmm. so that. And, and that there isn't, and that this, um, that there isn't enough well, over time, the lack of knowledge and expertise in working with these texts is lost, so that nobody is left to take an original a translation from good enough to actually fit to purpose. For example, in an academic study or in a religious environment. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, getting to things what what's good enough according to the AI industry, I think it falls far short of what's good enough for use in either an academic or a religious context. And I think the danger is that people get so excited by getting having something good enough that the enthusiasm and momentum needed to bring it to truly useful and fit to purpose is lost thanks for explaining that yeah it's um, almost like yeah. it's almost like fast food right like mm. like it's good enough it, you, you can eat the burger and it's okay and you, you're good you move on um but sometimes you want the the finely prepared meal yeah right? i think it, that, it, that, yeah yeah it's, you it know it's a lot it, more expertise right you know sometimes our you know we put so much value on efficiency 
mm -hmm. uh, that that we forget that that you know that there are other values uh, and criteria that we should be using to you know judge the kind of the work that we're trying to do. Yeah, and that's actually I think a, an astute point to to bring up because you're you're talking about say obviously the academic and the spiritual or religious sort of kind of uh, I guess metrics, um, but it seems to me that both of those fields uh, expediency isn't really or efficiency generally is not a word that I would associate with either field, which is to say they tend to be pretty kind of slow and conservative. And I, in, insofar as they're not looking to rush to things, they want to make sure that they get things right. They want to make sure that, that their message is clear, that, that their thought process and logic is sound. Um, they're not just simply trying to get up something out just for the sake of getting it out to turn a buck, right? Or to turn a profit. They've got very different, unlike say the AI sector or the tech sector, um, and I know Mike and I've talked about this before, and obviously other people have too, that the origination of, of AI and technology wasn't for, obviously it wasn't built for translations. You know, it can do that, but it, that's not its primary sort of objective or purpose. And so it, it's not necessarily going to do it in a way, it's, it, I guess it's, it's why it was evolved or developed rather was for, for more things like efficiency and kind of doing things quickly. Um, and, and so you get that good enough kind of, sensibility which isn't necessarily what you're looking for in your field um it's passable but you, you need you need great translators i just real quickly i'm thinking about um translations just within english and um you take something like like beowulf right that there have been translations that i've taught or used as a teacher that i didn't really care for and then i switch over to like the seamus haney one which i think is great and brilliant um but he's a real poet you know and he's able to bring a sensibility um, and I guess I should stress that word sensibility, right? Because we've used that before to make that story or keep that story alive and to keep it fresh. Um, uh, and I think it does the story justice, particularly for a contemporary audience. But there have been other translations mm -hmm. seen where it just feels kind of dead to me uh, and not particularly accessible. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. So I, I'm not sure where my point was exactly with that, other than it just seems as if um, you, you're, you're probably waiting in similar sort of waters trying to figure out how do I translate these texts with the right sense to kind of make them work. And AI is not really going to help you all that much. Um, and probably would be detrimental, I would think, to try to utilize it at this point. You know, Bob, can you you told me a story recently about one word in a text that you were translating that I think you said you have spent three days on. Mm -hmm. A study in inefficiency, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but a study in accuracy as well, right? And sometimes to be accurate, you have to slow down, mm -hmm. right? So can you could you kind of fill our audience in on like what was going on? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great example. Actually, I think it 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 shows a lot about the different concerns that uh, you know we as translators you know bring to bear on these questions. Uh, so the word in question in Sanskrit is kalpakataka, um, which you. is, a, thank you, which is essentially, <laughs> uh, it's a compound made of two words, um, kalpaka uh, and ka. So the ka is similar to the er suffix in English, which indicates the doer or the agent of an action. So you have the runner, the swimmer, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
then we have the doer of something. And the, this what, what are they doing? They are doing kalpika, which turns out to mean making allowable or making acceptable. So the, idea, the basic word is, this is a, a loophole the Buddhist monks and nuns adopted at a very early stage uh, that allowed them to accept donations of money, specifically gold and silver. So when the Buddhist uh, monastic community first began, one of the rules was that they would not touch gold or silver. But as they expanded, apparently, you know, and also importantly, um, the economy changed. That's an extremely uh-huh. important thing to know. The Buddhist monastic community actually arose at the same time as moneyed economies, capital-based economies arose in ancient India. So they're, they're intertwined. And in any case, the Buddhists responding to this changing environment adopt a rule that's essentially a loophole that allows Buddhist monks and nuns to accept gold and silver. And the way they do that is by <laughs> love this. appointing the Kalpakarika, that is the, the allower, yeah, the person who allows or makes the accepting of gold and sil- silver allowable. They're essentially an intermediary. And, you know, so let's say that... Um, I'm an, I'm a senior monk and I have a young apprentice that I'm training and we go out into the village on alms rounds. And one of the householders says, oh, you know, I want to offer you some gold and silver for the monastery and, uh, you know, for you. Um, and since I am not allowed to touch the gold and silver, I have my apprentice accept the gold and silver on my behalf. So this is the role of this, this, this person. And my dilemma was how to translate it. And uh, I found two previous translations. One was a legalizer, um, which I think uh, someone told me that reminded them of Peter Tosh. And, uh, <laughs> and the second one was, was the legitimizer which seemed to me to be sort of judgy, you know? Um, It just kind of carried this sort of, you know, critical, postmodern, you know, anti-religious sense that, oh, they're just legitimizing these donations or something. It Mm -hmm. just felt a little too cynical for my tastes. Mm -hmm. That's something I, you know, know, as a translator, I have a modern sensibility, but I also have a respect for the tradition. So, you know, you don't, I don't want my translations to be, you know, um, too cynical, but at the same time, you don't right. want it to be excessively, you know, respectful. Uh, so, you know, there's interesting things we have to think about. So here I am thinking, well, how do we express this, you know, this, this social, this socioeconomic role, which is very clearly important. Do we call this the person, the legalizer? Do we call this person, the legitimizer? Do we call this person, the allower? Um, you know, what do we call this person the enabler? Because actually enabler would be the most literal. But that has very specific connotations in our culture that don't apply in these particular cases. You know, we're not talking about, you know, some monk 
uh holding you know an older monk's liquor for him you know I mean, right yeah <laughs> so in the end I, I i went with steward um or at least that's what oh, that's okay. my provisional choice the steward huh. because the word stew apparently uh, there's some questions about the etymology but Stew, you know, either means stow, like to give yeah. someone something to stow it with them, or it means like the house, uh, like is to keep. In other words, mm-hmm. to stow mm-hmm. is to keep. And the yeah. ward, and the ward is the person who's responsible for the keeping. The stew. Oh, that makes total sense. Huh. Yeah. So, so in this case, I so moved away the- from a literal translation, um, and went with a more a translation that's maybe more um, idiomatic. Because I mm. felt that it avoided the, you know, the undesirable consequences, um, you know, all of which seem to express a particular opinion, you know, a particular although, judgment although, of, of, of what that role was, whether it was good or bad. It, do you mind if I throw a, I, I don't know if it'll be a wrench or not, uh, but I'm kind of curious as to your thoughts, because when I hear the word steward um, and the thing about the dynamic that you just portrayed. It seems to me that from our vantage point, culturally anyways, that it's a little bit maybe off in that a steward typically is somebody who has uh, some measure of power within, say, that house or that that facility or whatever the case may be. Whereas in this dynamic, um, that person who is the steward, as you're saying, actually doesn't. They're the apprentice. So it's kind of a reversal of roles or power dynamics mm-hmm. within so that there's kind of a now that's pretty nuanced, but like that's kind of my read on it. But the way you described it actually made total sense. But the one I'm thinking about the way that we oftentimes use steward, it's like, well, I'm the steward of my own home or I'm the steward of, you know, whatever business, whatever, that there is a certain sense of responsibility there that may not necessarily translate terribly well in the example you're giving. But I don't know. I'm not trying to make your work more difficult. No, no, you're not at all. In fact, uh, one of my colleagues this afternoon made the same observation. So oh, you're, sweet. You're, you're right on board. And uh, give absolutely. me a PhD. Just give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, that that's a good example of how how much thought you might and research might go into uh, assessing different choices. And then hmm. when you come to what you decide to be the best one, there's mm-hmm. still something unsatisfactory about it mm-hmm. because right. it's not one-to-one that's the problem right and that's mm-hmm. where it is uh i think that's why that word mechanic and formulaic kind of popped up in my mind before is that we we tend to think of or rather llms almost seem to me to try to function a more much more of a mathematical ag- algorithmic sense mm-hmm. which seems much more one-to-one it's like but language doesn't work that way culture doesn't work that way it's very different uh, so that I think that's a brilliant example to kind of highlight that. Appreciate that. Well, my understanding is that the LLMs operate uh, according to probability, essentially, yep. you yep. know, on the basis of all this, you know, information precedent that they've inhaled. Mm-hmm. It then, you know, spits out what is statistically the most likely, mm-hmm. you know, or common, yep. common word, right, you know, for this particular case. But when you think about, you know, how you choose, you know, what the most appropriate word is, it's not about probability because the probability will tell you in general what we're, what will happen. Mm-hmm. But the question right. you're asking is what is happening in this specific yeah. particular oh, case? Point. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that you, you, I think you went through four or five words, right? So like, like an array of words, right? And then large language models will 
kind of rank those. Like here's all the words that could fit based on the previous words and the, and the, and the sentence that comes before. And so you get five or six and then it, it doesn't choose the most statistically likely one. It chooses one that's less statistically likely. I think it sounds too robotic because people don't actually write like that. But, but to listen to you and your thought process go through each word and here's why this one isn't it. And here's why this one fits and doesn't fit. Um, large language models aren't doing that. They're not asking those questions. They're just simply going with the math and they, they choose one that, that works kind of. Right. Um, so I, I think, I, I think that, that description of what, of what actually happens when you translate is, is really enlightening for this. This is what actually happens when you want to translate a text. Yeah, right. I wanted to come back to what Patrick was saying also about Seamus Haney, you know, because I think that fits into the idea, the, the criteria that I'm suggesting, or this gulf I'm suggesting between good enough and fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, Seamus Haney, you know, any translation can be criticized or praised um, for any number of different reasons. And mm -hmm. So, for example, you praise Seamus Haney's translation for its poetry, right? Mm -hmm. Which seems perfectly appropriate to me, given that Beowulf is a piece of literature, that it's supposed to have an affective, you know, mm -hmm. function. And so, you know, there, the priority isn't necessarily on the content of what's conveyed, but, you know, it's a mixture of what's conveyed and how it's conveyed. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the here, you know, Seamus Haney's translation is good because the purpose of a translation of poetry, in this case, Beowulf, is you know, to evoke emotions, let's say, to evoke a, a, a certain thing. And so it is fit, fit for purpose. And right. so, the, you know, the question is, is can large language models, you know, identify this gulf? Between can they learn or be trained to identify the gulf between good enough and you know fit for purpose that very mm. specific um, goal? Mm. You know, and, yeah, and, and that, that but that at the same time that that I think opens up the you know the truth that AI large language models are extremely useful for certain purposes, and that's the right. point I mean to make is that. The question, you know, is AI useful or not? Well, what what's the purpose that yeah, we're trying right. to to accomplish? Or is is AI some going, to, totally going to be useful in translation? What's our goal, et cetera? Yeah, it, it takes me back. We, our last episode had um, Jane Rosenzweig, and she her her course she was it, it was titled uh, she's she's at Harvard. It was titled uh, "What Problem Are We Trying to Solve?" Right, so. Like you have a large language model, like, and we want to use it, but to why, Whatever, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just mm -hmm. because you have it, is it actually solving a problem or, or is it actually creating one, right? Because if you, mm -hmm. if you're trying to do a, um, a fit for purpose translation, then it's not the right thing to use at all. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think, I think we're kind of probably slowly go that way as we, as people just get used to using large language models and see what they do and learn about them that they'll say, Oh, that's not going to do a very good job for what I'm looking for, you know, but, but there's probably instances where it totally fits for a purpose when you're trying to write a memo or a Twitter storm 
right? Mm-hmm. And you can just kind of automate those processes, like kind of like kind of like the stuff that people kind of shrug about already. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just kind of man, that's good enough. You know, mm-hmm. works really good for that. I I I would love to hear someone from that that does a lot of work with large language models, like kind of address the translation. There's well, been the a art, lot of discussion so the, about like different cultures and and what you know the chat GPT has been trained on all English, right? So how do you how do you even like get the cultural information? And then there's all the kind of inherent bias that's you know from the language. Like so, I just love to hear someone that is immersed in that. Like what do, what do they think they're going to do if anything? You know, what were we going to say, Bob? I'm just kind of rambling. Um, I was just going to say that, uh, let's see, I think I, I lost my train of thought. Actually. I started thinking about something. So I rambled, just kept on rambling. <laughs> anyway, it's lost. It's gone. I don't, it'll it's come gone. back, but yeah. Well, I, you know, I, by way of analogy, and I don't know, I don't know if it's, it's, uh, beaten dead horse, but I, I, I was thinking about how, you know, Bob, you and I have talked about sports and how we were kind of fans of various sort of kind of sports and thinking about how, like athletes and teams like you wouldn't want an athlete that's like good enough to be pitching in the big game you know you need somebody who's a great pitcher you know what i mean like you, you, don't, mm-hmm. you don't want to have at the professional ranks you're looking for the best of the best and, and and the same thing applies with academics the same thing applies in any field you know you don't want a good enough doctor you want a doctor who can take can do the surgery and can save your life right and so and so uh, I can think of the argument for why uh, large language models might uh, be a- appealing to translators like myself, even okay. those working in um, sort of dead languages, dead and obscure mm-hmm. languages. Um, I think if you can press a button and 300 pages of text is automatically changed from tibetan mm-hmm. into good enough english mm-hmm. you saved hundreds of hours right and so at that point if you were you know all you have to do is clean and glean as mm-hmm. they say you mm-hmm. know you kind of you go through it and you have to clean it up and you have to glean what's right and what you know fix the errors and so forth mm-hmm. but that initial step that that ai can already do very effectively is a huge time saver. And so the one thing that my industry has to grapple with is the question of whether we're happy, and maybe it's not even a question of whether we're happy, but what thing we have to crap, grapple with, this is what, let me restate that. Mm-hmm. We have to grapple with the, you know, the, the likelihood that uh, this is likely to, you know, that we're likely to become cleaners and gleaners rather mm-hmm. than people who are working on a text from scratch. But then, but then wouldn't you have to, I didn't So the up. issue here is that someone like myself, who been, I've been working as an interpreter and translator for almost 25 years now. So I've done my training, but if somebody were to come up, uh, you know, going through school now, Mm-hmm. Um, if they rely on AI translation in their college language courses or high school language courses, they're not getting the fund the fundamental training in the language, which yeah. means that they're never going to develop the expertise that they need to clean and glean, because their knowledge is never going to exceed that 
of the AI system. And so right. it's not that AI large language models aren't useful to translators like myself. They are. They could be. It could be extraordinary for the industry. But they also pose this other danger, which is that, and this is where I think business and economics come into play and efficiency and so forth, is decisions start to be made about do we want to invest in giving people the resources to develop the expertise needed to clean and glean? Or are we, is it economically more efficient, better for us to simply go with good enough? And my concern is what we lose, not just in the training, but everything else. All we imagine losing access to everything that exists between good enough and fit for purpose. Yeah. What's the utility of the thing in question at that point? And and how, you know, once that knowledge is gone, you know, it's difficult to retrieve. Mm -hmm. So useful, but also potentially very, um, very difficult, very, uh, you know, potentially dangerous. Yeah, there is a segment of the education population that is, has been talking quite a bit about if the, um, large language models are going to kind of um, subvert or kind of circuit fry the very process of thinking and learning how to think and, and get through stuff because it, it can be done so efficiently. Right. So, so you're, you're, you're kind of saying for your job, like there's a whole, like, you know, lots of years of study, but, but just really for any student, I mean, if, if you're going to really truly learn something, you kind of have to do it yourself. You know, and so there's there's a lot of people kind of discussing. I'm kind of I'm, I was thinking about that with my my juniors today. I'm like, if we're gonna be thinking like you know, and, and I'm all I'm all like happy with using large language models. I'm like, but are we gonna are we messing up some of our thinking? You know, it's like we're gonna talk about it as a class this semester. Mm-hmm. Um, we're up on 50 minutes, um, Bob Pat. Um, is there any any closing thoughts for us? Bob, that you had anything that you kind of want to want to add to everything you said? This has been wonderful, wonderful conversation. Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, no, I mean, if there's anything specific that y'all you know want to touch on, that's cool. But no, I know for for me, I think I think the really interesting thing is is you just kind of highlighting like here is the process for what actually happens when you translate a text. And I think for me, the the important uh, phrase is fit the purpose. And that I, I think Pat and I both have, you know, had discussions about how large language models kind of produce good enough, you know, and, and how the, the efficiency, but um, you, you're the first person to say fit to purpose. Like, you know, and I, I like that phrase that, 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 and there's good enough, but then there's like, but is this fit to purpose? And so for me, I think this show has really been about, you know, does, does it fit to purpose, right? Is, is what we think we're doing, doing. Um, mm. So with that said, Thank you for coming on the show and tell us about about translation of stuff that I mean just just seems so complex to me. Um, if uh, the people in our audience didn't catch it, Bob said he's from Naperville, and ju- just I just want to kind of put this out there that you were just in a western suburb of Chicago, and um, you are a uh, cisgendered white male just like me, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you are translating. Sanskrit and Tibetan, and I think we didn't get the chance to talk about that kind of cultural divide. But I think it's I think it's just a really interesting component of 
of the act of translation, like just how much more you have to be aware because you didn't grow up in the culture, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of think mm -hmm. of like an AI system doesn't grow up in the culture, right? It just kind of, kind of just statistically looks at stuff. But anyway, that's the show. Thanks for coming on, Bob. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. And this is the Bob Brothers AI for Educators. I'm Mike Pearson. And I'm Pat Burns. That's, that's there again. All right. If you like this show, please share it. Please like it. Uh, please let your friends know about it. You can contact us on social media. We're on the Twitters. We're on the Facebooks. Uh, no Instagram for us. There's an email address that's on our RSS feed. Um, we'll put everything in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Have a good one. Bye-bye.